Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Amanda. Hi. Today we're going to be talking about sports again. We've done this before. Uh, If you want to hear what we've talked before, you can listen to episode 20, Fighting for More, where me, Noah, and Chris gave an overview of the topic. One of the key points in our discussion was that athletes are workers and that their fights against owners represent some of the most prominent class conflict in American society. It is the class conflict that we see most publicly. You know, we know athletes' salaries, we know their contract lengths, and it we don't talk about it in those terms enough. So today we're going to be focusing specifically on that conflict, on the strikes and lockouts and legal disputes between athletes and the people who pay them. Noah is going to lead us off with a discussion of Major League Baseball's rocky labor history. Thank you, Ryan. The first thing we should note is the the reason Major Major League Baseball is so important here is, number one, it's got a longer labor history than pretty much any other sport since its labor history begins in 1879. So in many ways, they're setting the stage for other leagues to follow. Exactly. More than once during this history, you're going to see that either what baseball does becomes a part of every other sport when it professionalizes or that other leagues, and I'm guessing this is going to be the case with uh, y'all segments, you'll see that they're going, those leagues are going to try to do what MLB does and generally be on, not always be successful at it because MLB has certain um, privileges. Yes. That's a good word to use for it. Now, what are those privileges? Just unless you want to get into that later. Well, we can sort of start, it, it it sort of leans into the same thing because what happened is the reason I bring up 1879 is that that's the year the National League officially inaugurated what's called the reserve clause. So under this uh, system, basically, mm-hmm. if you play for the Athletic Club of Philadelphia or the uh, Red Stockings uh, of wherever they were at the time, Boston. I think Cincinnati oh. – there might have been multiple red stockings. <laughs> that is entirely possible. Or the Spiders of Cleveland. Your choice at the end of the season is either you sign for what your team is offering you or you hold out and you refuse to play. There is no getting traded. There is no arbitration. There's no free agency. Nothing along those lines. And for uh, 50 years, almost 50 years, the rules stood unchallenged. Then in 1922... um, Somebody pointed out that this is blatantly uh, interstate commerce and cartelization. This is price fixing Mm -hmm. between all of these independent teams. And uh, the Supreme Court, in a sterling example of, you know, narrow legal decisions, ruled that Major League Baseball is not a sport or a company or anything like that, but, and I quote, an amusement, and as a result, (laughs) is not subject to interstate commerce laws. 
and therefore is not subject to antitrust laws, which the the idea that this was like a legal judgment was somewhat amusing. Um, <clears throat> that, but also somewhat discredited by the fact that people were openly arguing to grant baseball an exemption from the Sherman Act. Right. And so that essentially codified the reserve clause until about 1974. Mm-hmm. And every other league, mm-hmm. the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, as they professionalized, included it in their constitution. So through inaugurating that reserve clause, MLB essentially ensured that that system would be in place at the beginning of every other league's history. And you'll find that a lot of disputes have been over, like, n- after after the reserve clause has been even, like, taken out, you'll find that um, the free agency becomes an issue of, like, how how long until players, like, can qualify for free agency. That's a huge sticking point, at least in the NHL. Yep. So. yep. Uh, it, it's not as big a sticking point from what I've got here, but what compensation the teams demand for losing a free agent does become a huge mm-hmm. sticking point later. Marvin Miller, um, one of the essentially what passes for a leading light in labor movements in this country. He was the first executive director of the Players Association once it was officially recognized as a union. He's there basically until 1983. During all of that time, you've got the owners and players are kind of like uh, circling each other, figuring out what each of them is willing to do in order to establish their power over each other. You have uh, you have a couple strikes, a couple lockouts in the 1970s. Or sorry, you have one strike and two lockouts. And we should be clear, a lockout is when the owners decide that the players aren't coming to work. Lockouts are bad. Not good. Not we don't great. like them. <laughs> They're bad, folks. In, uh, in 1970, Kurt Flood uh, sued the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Power move. Exactly. Um, He pointed out that he'd given 12 years of his life to the Cardinals and the fact that they could simply tell him, you play for Philly now, get out, without any agency on his behalf was effectively a violation of the 13th Amendment. And um, that particular decision went against him and right. he ended up sacrificing his playing career. We still see today there are player most players do not have no trade clauses in their contracts. It's mm-hmm. just as unilateral now as it was then. Yep. And the one interesting note I found is that uh Justice Lewis Powell, as in the guy who authored the Powell memo, recused himself from the case because he owned Anheuser Busch stock and they owned the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Which number one, can you imagine a justice doing that now? And number two, why are they allowed to own stock? But anyway, so um, in finally in 1974, um, a number of pitchers either had their contracts violated, owners failed to pay what they owed them, or they had played a year – or sorry, they had not played for a year. So they their contracts were auto-renewed despite the fact that they hadn't played. They had held out. They had mm-hmm. taken the only other option available. And through arbitration – Baseball decided that they had now become free agents and that effectively killed the reserve clause, which Yay. I think is something we can all be happy about. Yeah. Yes. Because what you immediately see afterwards is a spike in player salaries. Absolutely. Um, and the owners 
in response, immediately locked the players out. <laughs> because of course they did. And during during the rest of the during the rest of the late seventies to early eighties, what you have is back and forth about uh, free agents, free agent compensation. By which I mean not compensation for the player, which that would be one thing, but the compensation to the owner or the team for losing a free agent. They want uh, certain draft picks, supplemental draft picks, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, players are arguing that uh, this. You know, it, if you if you get compensation for losing a free agent, it kind of devalues free agency as a whole because then you're you're getting something in return for that, and it, you're getting something for nothing. Essentially, yeah. And they, there's like a whole thing about uh, premium uh, free agents versus other free agents, so they end up getting classified into now, types. Now, who compensates a team that loses a player? The team that signs the free agent, right? Or at least they did at the time. So in theory, that's less money or less resources they have to pay the player. Mm-hmm. And the the counteroffer from players was that perhaps clubs could select from a pool of available free agents as compensation, but that obviously wasn't attractive to owners because that right. then for them it's, I don't know, it's not a deal or whatever it is that they like doing. <laughs> but eventually they they went to a strike – in 1985, over various things, there was pension plan, there was the arbitration cap. It was only two days. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. But the owners were so angry about um, the two-day no, strike. The, a two-day strike. And basically the fact that the, they felt the commissioner had not been sufficiently subservient to their had, wishes. Happened in the NHL, too. Oh, Almost yes. exactly. Preview of the next segment, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, the owners responded with three years of bald-faced collusion where they just refused <gasps> to sign each other's players. If you've seen uh, – there's a video on Lonnie Smith's career on YouTube um, that openly discusses this era of baseball and how it impacted his career um, just when it was kind of at its nadir. But So they did end up having to pay the players fines to the tune of about $280 million in lost contract money. And they kind of never got over that, mm-hmm. so they locked the players out again in 1990. Wait, you mean rich people hold grudges? No. <laughs> Heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're really we're really being these are original thoughts we're having. People, nobody <laughs> said it before, but this is where the owner said, "Okay, you've gotten free agency. Now we want a salary cap. Now we want revenue sharing. We want to give you um, their plan was something like." All broadcast revenue and 48% of gate receipts would go for players who weren't eligible to be free agents Mm -hmm. so that they could focus on paying the players who've already done their six years and presumably Mm -hmm. are in a better position to demand money and contracts. And they sold this to the players as saying this will increase average salaries. The players basically told them, no, it won't. And... um, <clears throat> in the end, what they got was a one hundred thousand minimum salary, which was mm-hmm. the first time that that had happened, and a six man committee on revenue sharing, which is it's kind of amazing that at each stage of these, basically the the major league the MLBPA is able to hold the owners to kind of getting for the most part the minimum of what they want, mm-hmm. and the owners are forced to respond by going outside the bounds of the CBA or outside the bounds of the negotiations and just doing things that are like openly illegal. 
<laughs> to to do their thing. You know, withhold pension payments, uh, refuse to pay into contracts what they're supposed to, collude with each other, and basically dare the courts to say, you know, even this is like going beyond your antitrust exemption. And then we have the big end, the MLB strike of 1994 to 1995. Mm. It's amazing. Sounds ominous. It's so good. It is the only time. So up until now, the most teams have lost is, um, so this is 713 games, but that's over 28 teams, I think. Yeah. So that's not a ton of games per uh, Mm -hmm. team. That was about a month-long strike. In the case of 1994 and 1995, the strike killed the World Series. Right. And the Montreal Expos' best season. So, you know, yeah, yeah rip. We miss them. Yeah. They almost came to San Juan, too. I'm so sad about that. Anyway, so the teams ended up playing 144 games and no postseason, mm-hmm. which obviously infuriated fans. Now, the owners still wanted the salary cap. They claimed that this would create parity. They want the revenue sharing again. They included a plan where the commissioner would become the final labor arbiter, but eventually mm. reduced the commissioner's powers in other areas, such as you know arbitration between players and owners. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, he could tell he could tell a player you have to accept this contract, but apparently he couldn't act as a mediator between the two uh, halves of the negotiating table. Okay, and there was, and here's the best part: there was no commissioner at the time because in 1992 <laughs> the owners had forced Faye Vincent. Uh, to resign, and he basically went and on the way out called, uh, said that Bud Selig and Jerry Reinsdorf, who were team owners at the time, had committed a $280 million theft against the players. In the form of that collusion. In the form of that collusion, which is the, I mean, you 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 wouldn't hear stuff about those two, stuff like that now publicly. Right. But... They they try to create these. Um, uh, they try to reduce the time that players are uh, need to be eligible for free agency, but they want to retain the rights to keep players that have four uh, in their fourth or fifth year of service. The MLBPA tells them no in July. The owners respond by withholding pension payments. This will be a recurring theme. There are no results from negotiations in August. The MLBPA counteroffers a luxury tax. So that's... <gasps> AKA a salary... Effectively works out to be a salary cap. Basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's 2% on the 16 most expensive clubs. That gets divided with the other 12. And then all teams share in 25% of gate receipts. The owners basically reject this. They say this isn't going to solve the problem. And the players go, well, to be fair, the salary cap plan plan that you're proposing is just trying to solve your problems Mm -hmm. um, at our expense. expense, uh, Just to be clear, a salary cap is something that hurts players on the whole because it Mm -hmm. limits how much money they can make. Yeah, it's meant to depress their salaries. Right. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, on September 14th, Seelig cancels the season. On December the 23rd, the owners unilaterally implement the salary cap without consulting the Players Association. So now we are in 95. We are in the preseason, and this is not over. And on January 5th, the Players Association declares that every unsigned player, and there are 895 of them, are now free agents. In January, On January 10th, an arbitrator uh, grants $10 more million to 11 players who sue for collusion. And on January 26th, 
The president himself, Bill Clinton, tells MLBPA and MLB to sit down at the table and keep negotiating. Which, again, this is what happens when you exempt a sport, sorry, an amusement, from <laughs> antitrust laws. Every time this happens, we have to like have the entirety of the federal government be involved again. So, uh, finally, in... Um, Oh, and I'm sorry. I forgot to mention this. On the 13th of January, teams approved replacement players, or as we're probably going to call scabs. them, scabs. Yep. Mm. The MLBPA says they're not settling the strike if you use replacement players. And worse for the MLB owners, their TV deal collapses because the revenue for the networks goes through the floor. Yeah. Because nobody is watching the games because and they're nobody's all angry. going to watch scabs because just a few years earlier the NFL had used scabs in 1987, I believe, and uh, saw it only lasted a few weeks. And though they won the strike at the time, like it was not a good look for the league. Um, but yes, nobody wants to watch a you know two zero game that goes 19 innings and ends in like I don't know the only double all all game long. <laughs> Anyway, on March 31st, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who, uh, you know, since went on to bigger and better things, rules against the owners and oh, yeah. demands, yeah, she issues an injunction telling them they can't use scabs and tells them that they have to abide by the expired collective bargaining agreement until mm -hmm. they can negotiate a new one. Finally, on September 29th, the... Um, a panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which is what Sotomayor was on at the time, tells the owners, you're done, this is over, go back to the old CBA. And mercifully, uh, by April 2nd, well, by April 2nd, the strike was over, mm -hmm. but this is the end, end, of end the of the of whole the thing. battle, yeah. Yes. Of course, the owners, in response, proceeded to fire the arbitrator they had had for about 10 years now. And Bud Selig, that guy that the former commissioner openly called, called a thief, the thief uh, so we can say it on the air, then became MLB commissioner. And you can kind of imagine how things have gone from there. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been – there have been threats of strikes or right. lockouts variously over the remaining years, but there hasn't been a major work stoppage since, mostly because it was – this was the epitome of not a good look. I was yeah. <laughs> I was reading about the effects of this and mm -hmm. like fans were throwing dollar bills at players and shouting greed at them. Um, people were, you know, jumping onto baseball fields. There were some that were very angry with the owners, some very angry with the players because, uh, you know, they believe the owners is uh, side of the story. But in, in general, that was that is Hugely possibly damaging to the league. Yes. And obviously, everybody's interested in not having a repeat of that. Right. When workers show their power, they have the ability to really put a wrench in things, mm -hmm. is what we see from the 94 strike. Especially when they're supported by a really strong infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, the MLBPA has history that the other leagues uh, don't. Interestingly, not led by a player until very mm -hmm. recently. That That's only happened in the last couple of years. But it's it's very it, – it has proven itself as a force to be reckoned with time and again. As we've been saying sort of throughout this segment, this leads – baseball sets a precedent that is followed by other leagues. And we'll be talking about one of those other leagues next. 
Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm here with Noah. Still here. And Amanda, who hey is guys. now going to rant about Gary Bettman. I hate him a lot. <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm going to talk about the NHL and the history of labor actions in mm-hmm. the NHL. Um, it's not quite as robust. robust as the NMLB, but it's still interesting. And you'll find a lot of repeating themes. I'm, the first strike in the NHL, there's only been two strikes and what the first one happened before the players association had even formed and that was in 1925 uh, when the hamilton tigers um just waited till they they were first in the league they were on top uh-huh. they waited until the last game and they then they walked up into to their manager on the way home from the last game and said and asked and demanded 200 bucks um to compensate them for the six extra games the NHL had added to their schedule without paying them extra in their contract. The NHL basically said, no, we're not going to do that. You're going to get what you uh, what your contract says. And then there was a strike. And these players were punished. They were sold off. Um, they were fine. For that was the final yeah. action was them being the Hamilton Tigers being sold. Um, to actually a bootlegger, nice. interestingly enough. Nice. Um, and they became the New York Americans, not the Rochester Americans, nothing to do with them. So um, it's like post-strike uh, retribution for the players mm-hmm. who had let it? Yeah. And that, that was the culminating action. The first, the first steps that were taken against them were that they were fined and suspended. Mm-hmm. But actually the players with their new owners actually um, got like a 20% raise Okay. Uh, so they it worked out fine for them. That's something. <laughs> um, but that's just the first strike. And then nothing really happened for a while. And the NHLPA, the Players Association, was formed, was attempt, the first attempt to form a union for the NHL was in the late 50s um, by Ted Lindsay, who was a Red Wings player, who was pretty famous, um, and <sighs> Doug Harvey of the Canadians. And so the inciting incident for him, for Lindsay, realizing that he, that a union would be beneficial um, for the players, was that he went to a pension plan meeting, which is something that you had discussed with mm-hmm. MLB. Um, and he, and the, and he realized that the NHL was not going to disclose to the players the details of their own pension plans. And that was infuriating to him mm-hmm. for, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. That's And for, for athletes, especially when, you know, they're looking at extremely short careers yeah. and they get their... Especially they, back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they need their pensions. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme you see even to this day. Like, I think the, the NFL's, if not their pension, the, like, health care they provide to ex-players has been a constant struggle between them and the Players Association. Mm-hmm. And the owners will withhold payments into those plans yeah. as a way to get current players to the bargaining table. Which yeah. is barbaric. Absolutely. Monstrous. It's, 
Also, is this where I mentioned that I'm technically an Avs fan, so the fact that a Red Wings player did something good is, like, unthinkable to me? <laughs> okay. I need to – I forgot to say this, but I'm a Bruins fan. Okay. So just putting it out there, um, the Canadians are bad. Um, okay. You mean the team, right? Yes. <laughs> Some Canadians from Canada are good. Some. A few. Taking stands today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So he attended the pension plan meeting, if we're we're circling back, um, the secret pension plan. uh, And he actually then, in an interesting turn of events, he kind of he met with other athletes and with their lawyers and heard that and and found out that the labor um, relation or the labor like situations in between like the NFL at that time and was a lot better than the NHL. And so he was like, we really need a union. And that was when, um, this was at the time where the reserve clause was still in effect for the Mm -hmm. NHL. So basically they owned the players until their contract expired. There was no free agency. Even after their contract expired. There was no free agency. Um, They owned the rights to the player, which is... And and so they started on that road of of the union drive basically, and there was extreme retaliation from the NHL. So they were consistently sending players that supported the union uh, to the minor leagues, so to the AHL. Mm. I don't know if it was called the AHL at that time actually, but to the minor leagues, um, they actually ended up trading Ted Lindsay f- to Chicago, who was which was struggling at that time as retaliation, and they traded Doug Harvey to the Rangers. Um, and actually, the GM, the general manager of of the Red Wings, gave, made a falsified contract, made, like, of Lindsay's, and with an, incor- with an inflated salary, and gave it to the press to um, turn public opinion against him. So he just straight up lied. Yes. <laughs> now- and it worked. All this stuff in terms of like trading players, punishing players, this is illegal. Like under labor law, you yes. cannot punish people for their efforts in a union driver. And that's what the owners were doing, but just to prevent the formation of a union. They're they're yeah. essentially just daring you to say this is not okay. Right. And they actually they had two test votes. The Toronto Maple Leafs voted yes. So those Canadians, those ones. <laughs> They're good. Um, but the uh, Red Wings team voted no, and that was partially because of the actions of, of, Jack, of, of um, Jack Adams. So it took a while, and Lindsay actually, Ted Lindsay, threatened to bring an antitrust lawsuit against the NHL. Um, that was his big move. He realized that the union probably wasn't going to form it this time, but he said, you know, this is what we're going to do. And the NHL actually was like, you know, if, if there's a lawsuit, we're probably going to lose. So they ended up acquiescing to most of the players' demands, including setting a 7000 minimum wage, which is like basically the unofficial minimum wage of the NHL anyway at that time. So it wasn't really a huge get, mm-hmm. but an increased pension and health insurance benefits. So <laughs> not, not terrible. And yeah. and the players' union didn't actually end up forming till ten years after that fact. After mm-hmm. that, but um, 
pretty good get for not having a union. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, he basically told them, do you think you can win the same exemption? Do you think you're as popular as baseball? Is basically what mm-hmm. he was doing. And they were like... <laughs> and they went, no. And the NHL, I imagine, is in weirder territory because they are in multiple countries. And Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after that, the Players Union was formed in 1967. So now we have a union. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. And there was one more strike. And this was in 1992. And so the issue at that point became... Uh, merchandising revenue and this is kind of interesting especially on the collectible hockey cards which for which were popular the I, 90s were weird yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember growing up i had a huge stack of baseball cards because everybody at the time thought they'd one day be valuable yeah. I, I don't know if mine i had that thought process i kind of like had beanie whole, babies pogs <laughs> babies, baseball cards mm-hmm uh, and this this strike only lasted like ten days, exactly ten days. So you know, s- pretty short. Um, but the players did vote to strike overwhelmingly, five hundred sixty to four, which is wow. great. Um, and they had been operating at that point seven months without a collective bargaining agreement. So oh, wow. they really they really needed it. So the consequence of that was that the player demands were ultimately met um, and the the they had struck like right before the playoffs they were looking to maximize their mm-hmm. and co- like I was, I think I mentioned this before collect their salary from the right. regular season games cuz yeah um actually um explain that cuz I don't think you had did that on there okay so for I don't know if this is the same for other same structure for other sports but hockey um you basically get your full salary for the regular season, and then you get bonuses for your playoff games. Um, so to put pr- they, they want to make sh- sure they get their full salary um, and, sh- and also put pressure on the team owners because team owners love playoffs. The tickets sell mm-hmm. for very high. It's high publicity, like all that. Um, so after the strike concluded, they – Got what they basically wanted, and the current commissioner at the time was fu- was forced out because they were the the NHL was basically so incensed that the players had dared to strike, and they were like, you you know, they blamed the commissioner for allowing this to happen, and they replaced him. This is where my favorite human being comes in. Hal Demon, Gary Bettman, <laughs> Ryan hit the minor chord. Yeah. Um and all the 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 past 3 labor disputes in the NHL's history have been under Gary Bettman. They have all been lockouts and they have all been punishing for the players. Almost it's it's not I would say conclusively not successful for the players. Mm-hmm. Gary Bettman is vile. He's a cretin. Um he's also a bad commissioner just generally mm-hmm. he's he so it's interesting to talk about like actually the lockouts because there's there's been there's kind of a theme the first conflict there in that kind of is contained within these lockouts is obviously the obvious um, management versus labor right. um that's common but the second the second like actually inter um team 
conflict out there is Between big the market. Owners. Big mm-hmm. market, yeah, big yep. market teams and small market teams. And for the NHL, and, and Gary Bettman's special strategy to make the NHL extremely profitable for the owners, not the players. Um, for the few, not the many. Yes, <laughs> is to expand into as many markets as possible, even if they're unprofitable, and just split the revenue and basically prop up small, small, small market markets. teams. And I know this has been a tactic in other leagues. Does mm-hmm. do they use like the lack of profitability as a bargaining chip in these labor negotiations? Do they cite they, like their losses and say we can't pay you this mm-hmm. much? Right. They, they they basically create two separate sides to the issue and play them against. Right. They played them against each other. It's they in, create the losses and then use yeah. that against the yep. players. Yeah. That's, and in um in in my research for. The previous episode we did on this, I did cover, I I did look at at the NHL and NFL. And actually, the players have sometimes been able to successfully pit small market teams against big market teams um, to get what they want. So the fact that effectively uh, Gary Bettman, who is bad apparently, (laughs) right? Yeah. has, Has been able to sort of use that from the other side. You know, would, is, is it would it quite be fair to say that he sort of uh, weighted the ownership group with small markets so that they win those internal mm-hmm. conflicts? Mm-hmm. They're also going to be a lot more. If you're a small market team with uh, a much thinner margin, you're going to be much more interested in nickel and diming everybody too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, now we're entering. We're so in the history of labor disputes, we are now entering the era of Gary Batman. Um, the lockout era. I, I'm officially terming, I'm going to call it the lockout era. So the first lockout was October 1st, 1994 to January 11th, 1995. Um, and this is like when hockey was at its peak of popularity too, like in the U.S. especially because the Rangers had won the cup and mm. they were on Sports Illustrated. <laughs> uh, I, the main issue of contention was a luxury tax on the salaries, Ooh. on salaries over the average, which effectively is a salary cap. And you'll find that this is a re- recurring theme. Was this like team salary? Like you would be taxed? No, individual would... players. So oh. there was there would be it incentive would... to like pay every player the league average, wouldn't there? You'd you keep it. You'd It's wow. to depress the player wages. That's it's... like a particularly vile form of luxury tax. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's a salary it's 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 yeah. a salary cap, yep. like on an individual level, mm-hmm. and the players' union recognized that immediately and said, "No way! Like they're right. n- we're not we're not doing that." Um, and so that was followed ten years later by the big one. As uh, MLB had the big one, yep. now NHL gets to have the big one. Um, this is in two thousand four. And it canceled the entire 88th season of the NHL, which is which was unprecedented. It was the first cancellation of a professional major league due to a labor dispute. So it's pretty. It was mm-hmm. historic. It lasted ten months, and resulted in 1,230 unplayed games. Do you think that was Gary Bettman deciding MLB lost a postseason? I'm going to kill the entire <laughs> season of my sport. He wanted just to, to one make up a point. The com- yes, I. He would. He would do that. So basically what Batman was looking to do in this lockout 
is institute cost certainty by making sure the teams weren't losing money by tying the players' salaries to the league revenue. Which, as we discussed, league revenue was lower than it could have been because they had all these small market teams, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So the NHLPA, again, is was like that's a salary cap you're not gonna do that Mm -hmm. um so there was a bunch of back and forth negotiations it got pretty messy um batman set a deadline of february 15th at 11 a.m where he said if there's not an agreement reached by then we're gonna lock out there was lots of negotiations that went on it was very uh hostile um and it the nhlpa ended up ratifying the agreement with 87% of its members voting in favor. Um, This was after the negotiations. They basically came up with something. I would say that everyone agreed on, but everyone didn't agree. They just, they needed, it was, they realized that it was basically ended. There's nothing, there was no... um, No point in extending it even further. uh Uh-huh. So what they ended up with, was a starting salary cap of $39 million to be adjusted each year in order to ensure that the players received 54% of the NHL revenue, a salary floor, guaranteed contracts, revenue sharing amongst league teams to split a pool of money um, from the 10 highest grossing teams amongst the, 10 bo- the bottom 15. So that's what we were talking about, redistributing mm-hmm. uh, the profits from big to small markets to prop them up. Prop them up. And at this at this point, the strike was extru- or the lockout, excuse me, was uh, not great for the players' union and yeah. or the players. Mm-hmm. Public opinion was not on their side, unfortunately. Um, the executive director of the NHLPA was actually forced to resign because mm-hmm. he was blamed, um, not Gary Bettman, who is uh, who is at fault for every one of these lockouts. I would like to make that put that on record. Um, and actually most teams, it was successful for the owners. Most teams increased in value after the lockout. Mm-hmm. So this was not great, uh, for even labor. as like the lockout caused a huge decline in like TV viewership and obviously losing a whole season worth of revenue. Mm-hmm. Actually soon, um, following the lockout, there was a even more profitable TV deal that was ne- that mm-hmm. Batman negotiated. That mm-hmm. was one of his like mandates as a commissioner was to negotiate, expand, into basically the sun southern markets sunbelt uh negotiate a better tv deal and so okay so now comes the interesting tidbit Uh i'm that we're going to i'm going to pose a question to you okay who do you suppose batman invited to a meeting of the owners Mm -hmm. to buy the entire nhl during the lockout can i can i get some guesses you go first because mine might be stupid (laughs) <laughs> I'm just going to go Donald Trump. Not That Trump. was my guess. Although it is... <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. It is. It's, so, it's associated with a political figure of some kind. Was it a Kennedy or something? Was it Rush Limbaugh? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh? Because he wanted to buy the Rams at one that's point. That's true. Saint yeah, Louis that's Rams. a good point. A former presidential candidate. Bob Dole? No. <laughs> a potential member of the Trump administration. Mitt was Romney? Fed- wow. Yes. What? It was Bain Capital. 
Oh, oh. okay, that makes okay. Yeah. <laughs> he he offered that coming. three point five billion to buy the entire league, and there's debate over whether that offer was taken seriously. But the owners basically kind of put forward that mm. they didn't give him the time of day. But who knows? God, um, can you imagine a Mitt Romney hockey league? Yeah. It'd be terrible. It'd be boring. It'd as be hell. worse than the NHL already <laughs> is. <laughs> There'd be a team in Utah. Yeah, but he wouldn't be running for senator. So, yeah. in theory, mm. okay. So that's Bain Capital's involvement. I did want to read a quote from a hockey analyst, very bad hockey analyst, and former Flyers forward at the time, Jeremy Roenick, who was kind of responding to public condemnation of the players basically asserting their rights um, and pushing and demanding you know, their due. Uh, he said... We're going to try to make it better for everybody, period, end of subject. And if you don't realize that, then don't come. We don't want you at the rink. We don't want you in the stadium. We don't want you to watch hockey. And Not a good look. Nope. Unfortunately. Can't have been helpful for uh, the union side and the... Yep. I mean, he's right. If he you're going to take yeah. the boss's side, I don't want you there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're... That that's part of the problem. That's how you get away with a sport being classified as an amusement. Mm-hmm. In case you didn't think I was still mad, I okay. wasn't still mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we have one last lockout. Um, so this was in 2012. This is the most recent one. It was basically over limiting new player contracts, eliminating signing signing bonuses, extending entry level contracts to five years so they don't have to pay a high salary. And setting a requirement of ten years before the eligibility for free agency, which they can Oof. keep, they can ten years. Lock ten them years. In. It that that was the owner's Batman's, demand. Yeah. yeah. So please tell me they didn't get it. Th- no, they didn't. But the interesting part about this lockup in particular is that the NHL PA actually the negotiations were going so poorly that the NHLPA planned to allow its members to vote for a disclaimer of interest, which basically means that the union would have been dissolved. Um, And then they were planning to bring an antitrust lawsuit against the league. So one of the benefits of dissolving the union would have been that uh, the NHL wouldn't have been allowed to lock out um, players who aren't members of a union. Right. They would... If they did that, they would have had to. Pl- it was basically a tactic to try to end the lockout, yeah. um, and they would have had to pay pay triple their owed wages. So mm-hmm. as a punishment, um, so the NHL responded to that in the typical scumbag Batman move by bringing a class action lawsuit in federal court and filing an unfair labor practice with charge with the National Labor Relations Board. Um, the NHL and, did this. Uh-huh. And also, it threatened to. It. I don't think it actually filed. So it's, it's threatening to do something that is designed to help workers right. from the owners' side. Yeah. Okay. And this is the kicker, I think. It also threatened to void all contracts that were on the books and turn everybody into free agents, which was a threat to the... Um, players but also would have been extremely stupid to do for the league because all the salaries would have like immediately mm-hmm. shot it, it was just ridiculous a ridiculous move um so a new cba was signed 
And all three of these lockouts basically have, haven't worked out very well for the players, and that's unfortunate. And that's because you saw the 1992 strike, basically the NHL reacted by clamping down and saying, we're not going to allow a strike ever again. We're never going to give players the power in this situation. We're going to lock them out first. And I did want to read um, actually another quote by a Panthers forward, Chris Bark. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he tweeted this in Uh 2012. He said, I wonder if the owners of Boston, New York, Washington, et cetera, have endured any of the injuries that I or any player in the NHL have endured. Still, they probably sit there smoking the same brand of cigar, sipping the same cognac, and going on vacation to one of five houses they own, while we sit here knowing that they want to take 20% of our paychecks. One half to three quarters of my peers will have to work for the next 50 years of their lives. Congratulations to the lucky select few that can choose to do whatever they want when they are done. But most who I have played with do not. To that point about injuries, it's not necessarily like a lockout strike issue, but it could be in theory is like Gary Bettman has sort of tried to downplay hockey's role in like causing concussions and Mm -hmm. causing CTE. He has denied the link between concussions and CTE, which is this terrible brain disease that it effectively brings on dementia and people who are like... 20, 30 years old Mm -hmm. just from – it's seen most often in football, but you're seeing more of it looked into in hockey. Yeah, it's not not mentioned in conjunction with hockey, but hockey is an extremely violent sport. People are – No. Checked their – you know, slammed up against the boards all the time. People get concussions all the time. The, and their concussion management, the NHL's concussion management system is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's it's not enough, um, but anyway. Okay, so what we've learned from this segment, if there's one thing I want everybody who listened to this to take away, it's that Gary Bettman is the devil incarnate. He's terrible. He's ruining the NHL. Gary Bettman, am I right? <laughs> It is very now. Now it kind of it is very unfortunate that the last segment had to end with Bud Selig becoming commissioner, because most of his really terrible stuff happened when he was still just yeah. one of the owners. Speaking of terrible stuff, we'll be back with uh, <laughs> a different sport that has gone in a very different direction. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, still here with Noah. I don't. And Amanda. How are you? Uh, they had talked about Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League, respectively. And here I want to talk about the sort of labor history of Major League Soccer, which is a thing I care perhaps too much about. Noah had talked earlier about in the 1980s, baseball owners had colluded to keep player salaries down by basically agreeing not to sign each other's, each team's free agents, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And it cost players, what was the amount, $280 million? Yes, and then it cost the owners that when they had to pay the players. Yeah. Major League Soccer's very structure is designed to prevent anybody from accusing it of collusion because all the teams are technically a single entity 
the league is one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Players sign contracts with the league itself rather than individual teams. Hmm. And as a result, it has been ruled in court that the league cannot collude with itself. I bet Gary hmm. Bedman dreams of this every night. <laughs> he probably does. I don't want to know about his dreams. That anyway. that's oh, that's horrifying. It's like grinding children into dust and yeah. and that have and that. <laughs> okay. Um, now there's some context here. Major League Soccer is the newest of our big sports. I think you can say uh, it was founded in 1996, following the uh, World Cup, which was held here in 1994. And it came in the aftermath, the long aftermath of previous attempts at soccer leagues that had had brief success, but no lasting uh, concrete uh, standing, I guess you could say. Um, and the idea behind the league was, okay, these the prior league, the North American Soccer League of the 70s, had sort of spent its way into oblivion. They had started paying players like Pele and some of the big stars of the era to come play soccer in the United States. And it drew big fans for a while, and then it withered away into nothing as teams couldn't compete with New York and Los Angeles, basically. So MLS said, okay, we're not going to have these bidding wars over players because we're not going to have separate teams. We're going to legally construct this league as one entity and that's what it is now. So there's no so when players are to the extent that they can mm-hmm. uh hoping to bargain for better salaries or benefits or whatnot, they're not bargaining with their team's owner or a collection of team owners. They're bargaining presumably there are, with there are owner operators who have increasingly been given more autonomy to do with the teams to do with day to day operations. So, they franchise teams? Yeah, yeah. And they give out like big franchise fees, like expansion fees. Uh, like Atlanta paid like $130 million to join the league, you know? So they have separate ownerships, they have separate management, but legally they can't collude with each other. And in the early days of the league, the Players Association, with help from the NFLPA, sued the league over its structure, saying that this can't be legal. <laughs> And <laughs> I feel like every brief on behalf of a players association could just be summarized this by be this legal. can't be legal. Are you kidding me? Right. The WTF. Like, <laughs> the like count against like the single entity structure of the league was like dismissed by the judge in like a summary judgment. He said, okay, no, this is fine. They can't collude. No, he basically upheld the single entity structure as legal like right off the bat and then only the antitrust portion of the lawsuit actually went to trial and it was eventually ruled that because soccer has this global market where you know there are teams in Europe there are lower levels of soccer in the US they can't be a monopoly because they don't control the market but of course as players noted at the time there are significant barriers to playing in Europe you need a passport to be able to go there and ply your trade the lower level leagues aren't able to pay as much as Major League Soccer can. Mm-hmm. And the net effect of this structure and the uh, ruling of the lawsuit upholding everything the league did as okay is that free agency 
didn't really exist in Major League Soccer until just recently, 2015, because there was a potential for a strike. And I think it was like the Wednesday before the season was to start on Friday where they finally reached an agreement where the players ended up taking less money than potentially they could have in order to get free agency, which even then is still a fraction of what other leagues have because you need to be 28 years old and have eight years of experience in MOS in order to become a free agent. So it's Mm. that's got to be some of the weakest free agency there is. Right. And soccer is a sport where players start young, typically, their professional Mm -hmm. careers. Uh, There's a player on New England named Diego Fagundes. He's 23. This is his eighth season in the league but he won't be eligible for free agency for another five years because of the age 28 and yep. eight. Wow. If he lasts that long, too. Right. That's, no, that that's insane. It, do we think, and I know that the last episode we recorded was on the uh, Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but do we, do we perhaps think that judges, when it comes to these things, are just kind of justifying what they walked into the courtroom already believing about which of these sides is correct? You mean the law... Sides with the wealthy? Never. I mean, no, no, no. Several hundred years of what I've been taught in history class can't be wrong. (laughs) So um, instead of free agency, what players whose contracts end, because their their contracts are like three or four years, like other leagues, what they have to go through is either they re-sign with the team that they were playing for already at mm-hmm. whatever you know conditions that team wants to place on them. They can try to find work in Europe, which like the UK, for example, you need either a EU passport or you need to have played like 60 or 70% of your national team's most recent games. So it's oh, wow. very mm-hmm. restrictive as to who can just go play in England, even though that's the most natural fit for American players due mm-hmm. to the language barrier. Or you go through the re-entry draft. So players who get so instead of just players who enter the league, you know, from college going through mm-hmm. a draft system, veterans in the league have to go through this re-entry draft if another team wants to pick them up. Hmm. There are all these like weird machinations of the structure designed just to keep teams from bidding with each other for players so what you're basically saying is we're like 80 percent of the way to a reserve clause yeah even if that's not officially on the books it's to the extent that if a player's contract ends he goes to europe if he wants to come back to the league the team that he left still owns his rights so if you want to play for new york after you've left colorado and maybe played in denmark or wherever Mm-hmm. you have to hope that New York is willing to trade with Colorado for your rights. That's So So Major League Soccer, which, to mm-hmm. reiterate, is a league that was founded in 1996. Yes. Is using labor practices that were ratified <laughs> by the National League in 1879. Yeah, you could say that. Um, I like to think of it as sort of like the gig economy of sports leagues and that they're using these <laughs> weird structures and loopholes in order to keep labor costs down. Play and, sharing. Yeah. And here's like the extent of what keeping labor costs down mean. It means the minimum salary this year is $54,000. 
the mm. median salary is $150,000. And this is a significant increase from just five years ago when it was $75,000. Jeez. So you're seeing now this um, big market versus small market gap that you like see in baseball and about. hockey where the big markets are more willing to spend money. The league has become more um, – it has a salary cap, but there are increasing ways to get around that salary cap so as to, so that teams can sign David Beckham, for example. Right. Um, so you have a team in New England that is paying roughly what the salary cap is, and then you have like – Atlanta, or Toronto paying, you know, three or four times that on player talent. Wow. That's, it's bad. It's it's <laughs> not great. And I like the league. I like watching it. And at times, you know, I've justified this structure as saying that's what they needed to do to survive as a soccer league in the United States in the 1990s. But as the league has grown, I don't think it's necessary anymore to be this sort of uh, anti-labor, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing. The theme running through all of these segments that we've done now is that basically the owners, or in this case, the franchisees, mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. um, in, in every one of these leagues, what they've done is basically just play a constant game of chicken with their players. Mm-hmm. They're, they know full well that uh, the players need things like healthcare, they need their salaries, they need benefits, they need the things mm-hmm. that, to, to make the point again, that yeah. all workers need. But they are in such a public environment that mm-hmm. they're betting, they're always betting, that public opinion will side with them over the players because mm-hmm. if you're on the other side of that, if you're the audience for these games, you, don't, you may not know. Yeah unless you're a, a total stats head, you may not know what somebody's salary or the contract length is, mm-hmm. but you do care about the fact that you're not getting to see them play. Yeah. And what's interesting about sports in general mm-hmm. and athletes and the relationship between athletes and owners is they athletes are indispensable. Yes. There is no, no NHL, there's no MLB, there is no MLS without, mm-hmm. the, it's, without the athletes. And so they have a lot of power, and the, it's interesting to think about the reasons why they can't wield that a lot of times. Yeah. Like we've talked at length already about free agency. and basically What that does is it gives players significant boost to their salaries because they have that power, because they are indispensable. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, it just it gives them the right to play f- to every once in a while, you know, play mm-hmm. for a team they might actually want to play for. Right. Uh, whether that's because of a better salary, whether it's because they're, you know, a hometown boy for that mm-hmm. team or what have you. And it's hometown inter- person, I guess I should yeah. say. And it's interesting to compare MLS not just with the other major leagues in the U.S., but with, like, soccer leagues around the world, which don't largely do not have salary caps. And they're largely dominated by the wealthiest and the most – story clubs already Mm -hmm. but the players have significantly more power there and it's not necessarily because they've gone on strike but because there's really a different labor law framework in europe like uh freedom of movement is considered like sacrosanct so that you know that's the basis on which free agency exists there is you have to be able to move between Mm -hmm. not just teams but countries even and there's like a five-year maximum on contracts so that 
players are free agents more often than they otherwise would be. Right. And every player has effectively a no trade clause because oh, wow. not just do you have to be sold to another team, you then have to sign a contract with them before you play for them. So if you don't mm. want to sign a contract, you don't have to. And the end result is that players have significantly more power than they do almost anywhere, uh, any other sport. Well so then. what we're saying is that the way things are is not the way they have to be. Right. That there are there are ways to do this right, effectively. Um, you you don't have to be ruled by Bad Selig and Gary Butman and <laughs> Major League Sucker, I guess. <laughs> nice, nice. Roger Badell. <laughs> um, but before we go, we got com- the jokes. We got them. Before we go completely <laughs> off the rails into pundum, I think we'll uh, call it a week here on Punching Out. Um, hope you join us again next week. I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Amanda, and I want to say congratulations to the Washington Capitals for winning the Stanley Cup Finals, probably. Okay. All right. (laughs) This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.